Tonight we'll be finishing up uh, the series that we've been in, and so this is the sixth week. Uh, Next week, Keith will be in here, and uh, the topic that he will be covering will be um, abiding in Christ. So I'm not sure how many weeks he's going to be doing, but it'll be in John chapter 15 if you want to look ahead. Uh, That's where Keith will be, I believe, starting next week. And so, but tonight, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. We'll start in verse 4. 1 everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water and only, but also water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that... Te- For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God uh, that was born born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. And because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born uh, concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son, Son of God, does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we we know he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give it to him, or give, give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there's a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that every, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And so this is the finishing up this uh, book tonight. And so tonight, if you think about last week, we finished up the characteristics of fellowship. And over the last two weeks, we talked about these characteristics, which are purity of life, uh, practice of righteousness, love and deed and truth, testing the spirits, which we looked at last week, and then love as Christ loved. And these characteristics are present in the life of a believer who loves and obeys God. And so when these characteristics are present in the life of a Christian, Fellowship with God, Christ, and other believers, they, we enjoy fellowship when these characteristics are evident in our life. And again, these are things that are produced by the Spirit. These are not something that we do on our own. They are Spirit-produced, these characteristics that we've looked at. And so tonight we're going to finish this series looking at four consequences or results. Consequences is not bad. I mean, it can be bad. There's consequences if we do bad, but there's also good consequences. And so we're talking about 
good consequences or results of fellowship. And so go back to verse 4, and we'll go through these four uh, tonight. The first one we see is victory over the world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So those who know Christ have an overcoming spirit, actual victory, despite the temptations and troubles of this world. Now, we don't have victory on our own. We need to understand that, is that we can't claim victory on our own. And so a lot of people go around binding this and binding that, and I, I bind Satan in the name of Jesus. They do all these things. Well, we don't have any power in doing that. We don't have power in, to, to claim victory over the world. Only Christ does. And so this world can do nothing to rec- reclaim believers. God has defeated the evil world system and has taken loving ownership of his people. It is all, again, it is all of God. And we need to understand that theologically, the scripture, it's all God. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about Jesus Christ coming and redeeming sinful mankind. And so oftentimes we need to be careful, not my notes, but be careful not to try to read ourselves into the Bible. The Bible is all about God, and so we have to be careful not to do that. Now, it says things to us. It speaks to us. It tells us who we are, which, what are we outside of Christ? We're desperate sinners who are destined for hell. That's what we are. Um, and the Bible tells us that. also tells us who Christ is, and it tells us who we are in him. Again, but it's all a work of God. And he is the one who has defeated the evil world system and has taken loving ownership of his people. So hold your place there in 1 John and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at a few different verses here. Second Corinthians chapter 5. That's 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold... The new has come. And so this work that God does in us, he creates us and remakes us and makes us new. And so now this victory that we have over the world, that we are overcomers, is through Christ. That he came and he did a work in our heart, gave us a new heart, gave us new life when we were formerly dead. And all things have become new. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 28. It says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And so we are in the hand of the Father. This is how Christ came, he died, and and the evil world system has been defeated. And now we are in the hand of God, and it says there's nothing greater, nothing more powerful than the hand 
of God. There's no safer place to be than the hand of God. Again, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. It's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. He says, I and the father are one. There's no safer place to be than in the hand of God. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 57. And Paul goes through, this is the resurrection chapter. And he comes to the end of the chapter. And in verse 57 of First Corinthians 15, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we don't, we don't claim victory on our own. Victory is only through Jesus Christ. He's the one who claimed victory, and we get to enjoy that as a believer, as a child of God. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. To the cross. He disarmed the rulers, authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I hope you see from the scripture, it's very clear who it is who won the victory and it is Jesus Christ who won the victory and so because we belong to him now we experience victory over the world as well because we are in Christ go to Romans chapter 7 Romans chapter 7 verse 24 And this is Paul speaking. When Paul is saying, I don't understand what I do, the things I don't want to do, if I'm, I find myself doing, the things that I know I should be doing, I don't do, and he, he's going through this whole thing. And then he comes in verse 24, and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In verse 25, it says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It says, Thanks be to God. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It says, Thanks be to God. It's God alone. He is the one who will deliver us. He is the one who has had vic- who secured victory over the world. And so because of that, we get to do that through him. So it is in Christ who won the victory, and his children enjoy sharing in that victory with him. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, we were powerless and hopeless before Christ. Before we knew Christ, we were, we were powerless, we were hopeless, And he secured the victory on Calvary. In that moment, in that time, the victory was sealed. And so now he has secured victory over the world. And then in verse uh, John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you have... uh, Let me start over, because I totally butchered that. 
I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It says you're going to have trials, you're going to have tribulation, life is not always going to be easy, but he says take heart, have peace, because I have overcome the world. So praise be to God for that. One of the for, uh, this first consequence of fellowship is that we have a we have a Savior who has overcome, who has defeated sin, who's defeated death, who defeated all the principalities of darkness, and that we belong to Him. And so praise be to God for that. That He is the one who secured this victory over the world, and we get to share in that with Him. So the next consequence. Go back to First John. And this one we're going to spend the most time on tonight. And then the last two won't be as long. But 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. It says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that, we, uh, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has, this, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son of God, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so right now we'll be talking about, just for a little bit, assurance of salvation. And the Apostle John has continually hammered home through this epistle the truth that a correct view of Jesus Christ is essential to salvation. We have to believe in the biblical Jesus. There's a lot of different ideas about who Jesus was. Uh, Even the the Gnostics who were teaching, the false teachers at that time, they taught a different Jesus than the Jesus of of Scripture. And so it's so important that we have a correct view of Jesus. It's essential to salvation. He's the focal point of redemptive history. And the Father has repeatedly testified that he is the Messiah. He's the Savior, the Redeemer, and the King. And so the key word in this section of verses that we're about to be talking about is the word testify. So you can kind of think legally, testify, the testimony, but whose testimony is it? It's God's testimony. So this is God's testimony we're going to look at. And so uh, we'll start with just the particulars here. There's three elements, and I think I put these on your, they're on your handout, so just uh, quick notes there. But, so this is God's testimony to his son. In these three elements here, we have the water, we have the blood, and we have the Holy Spirit that are spoken of here. Now there's a lot of different various variations of, of what these verses mean and how they're applied. Um, I think in context, and I, and I read some stuff this week, but I think in context, what were these false teachers teaching? They were teaching this, it's this Gnosticism that the... Incarnate, they denied the, uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. They denied the incarnation. They denied the, that Jesus had an actual body. And so in light of that, in context of what, what was going on, 
it would make sense that the water would refer to Christ's baptism. His baptism. The blood refers to Christ's death. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit is involved in the ministry of Jesus uh, from the time he started, well, really, from the time of conception all the way through uh, the end. So the baptism and death of, of Christ, it bracketed the Lord's earthly ministry. And in both of them, the Father testified concerning his son. So this is God's testimony. And what he's, the case that he's laying out is that Jesus is the true son of God, that he is God in the flesh, because that is what was being attacked during that time, and that is attacked in our day as well. And so both of them, the father testified concerning his son. John MacArthur, I'm going to read this quote. He, explained, he explains uh, this uh, in a little different way here. But he says, the father did not, as the false teachers whom John was combating insisted, affirm that Jesus, affirm Jesus at his baptism, but not at his, uh, his death. And so these false teachers, they affirm that Jesus did not receive the Holy Spirit until he was baptized and that he left before he died. Which hopefully you're already thinking, that's some major issues there. There's some major, major issues with that, and we'll look at those here in just a minute. Those heretics, purveyors of incipient form of Gnosticism, taught that the, the Spirit, the Christ Spirit, is in quotes here, descended on the man Jesus at his baptism, making him the anointed one. So prior to that, they're saying he was not the anointed one, but he became the anointed one at his baptism. This is what the false teachers were teaching. And so according to this heresy, Jesus, under, under control of the Christ Spirit, gave valuable ethical teachings during his ministry. But the Christ Spirit left him before the crucifixion, and the false teachers further claimed he died as a mere man, not not the God-man whose sacrificial death atoned for the sins of all who would ever be justified. Do you see a problem with some of those teachings that, the, that they had, that they were hearing? This Gnostic teaching, I hope you see that there's some major problems with this. Remember this Gnostic teaching, it denied the incarnation and the fact that Jesus had a real body. John is specifically targeting uh, this false teaching and delineating God's testimony that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. And he is contending that Jesus is the true Son of God, that he was fully God, that he was fully man, and it was from the moment, it really is from all eternity past, but Jesus on, on earth, it was at his conception when it was con- uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so he, but he, John is, he is contending for this. And so this Gnostic teaching presents many dangerous theological implications. First of all, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> First of all, if Jesus received the Spirit at his baptism, then the incarnation was not true, and that he was just a mere man who was just a good teacher. That's what he was. That he was born a natural person, uh, that there was no supernatural um, Conception of the Holy Spirit, as, as the Bible teaches, and that he was just a man who, who lived his life, you know, as a pretty good guy, but he was just a mere man. And so this, this is totally not the, the Jesus of the Bible. And then second problem we see here is if Jesus did not possess all his divine nature on the cross, Jesus could not and did not conquer sin and death for believers, which if this is the case, we are still dead in our sins today, as we sit here. 
Because if he, was not the, the, if he was not divine, if he is not God in the flesh, the perfect sacrifice that the Spirit left him before his crucifixion, he, was, he died again as a mere man. It could not be the perfect sacrifice that was needed to satisfy the righteous requirements of God. And so we are still dead in our sins if that was the case. So moving on to Jesus' baptism. Let's look at the baptism first. Go to Matthew chapter 3. And so this is the water. The testimony of the water. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew 3, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John. This is not the Apostle John. This is John the Baptist. uh, To be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it, let it, so be, or let it uh, be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, opened up to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is my beloved son, this voice, and behold, a voice from the heavens, from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So which parts of the Godhead do we see here? We see all three of them. We see God the Father, we see God the Son, we see the Holy Spirit. And so we see all of these here. The baptism of John was a public affirmation of repentance from sin. The teaching of John was repentance. Do you remember what Jesus, when he started his earthly ministry, what did he preach? The same thing John did. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is saying, repent of your sin. And so this baptism was a public affirmation of repentance from sin, which is an external act symbolizing an inward reality. Although Jesus was without sin, it was still necessary for Jesus to be baptized. And by doing so, he identified with sinners um, he publicly identified with them. And what you see in, in Scripture is that Jesus always performed what God required of his people, even paid the temple tax and all of those things, is that he, he fulfilled the law. He did everything that God required of his people. He did those things perfectly. And so his perfect obedience made him the sinless sacrifice whose death made atonement for sin. And so we see all three persons in the Godhead were present during the entire ministry of Christ, and it began, when we see them all together, at his baptism. This is the testimony of the water, is that surely he is truly the Son of God. All three persons of the Trinity were present. The physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit provided visible evidence of the Father's testimony to the Son, especially to John the Baptist, uh, go to John chapter 1. Gives us a little insight into what, to John, because he was the forerunner of the Christ. He was the forerunner of Christ, and so we see what he said, what was said about him in John chapter 1, verse 31. Verse 31. 
in verse 31, John chapter 1, verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel, so that Jesus, the, the Messiah, would be revealed. It says, and John bore witness, again, John the Baptist, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John says, truly, this is the Son of God. He saw this. There is this visible evidence that God gave concerning his Son. So moving on to the crucifixion, um, just as with his baptism, the Father gave a striking testimony to Jesus and the miraculous events surrounding the crucifixion. For instance, there was three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. Would that be weird? Especially, you know, here we have a lot of sunny days. There's no clouds. Could you imagine if it just went dark for three hours? Would that be odd? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that would be odd. So we see this, uh, that God, what we see here is this darkness was the wrath of God being poured out on the sun. And after when Jesus, when he died, the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that the Father accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. And now we have, free, we have access to God. We don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go to a pastor. It's not through a church. It's through Jesus Christ. He is the access to God the Father. So this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that only the priest could go one time a year, now that is, that is gone. And we have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so this temple veil is a thick curtain, and it was torn from top to bottom. It's interesting that detail's in there. No man could have done this. No man could have done this. God did that. And then also we see that the earth shook. There's an earthquake. That rocks split, and many of the dead saints were raised to life. And they recognized them. They were walking around in Jerusalem. Could you imagine if you, somebody died, and then all of a sudden you see them walking through they just show up at church one day or something. You're going, you died. I'm sure, I'm sure of it. Maybe you're like, I thought they did. But no, you're like, imagine if that happened. Is that a miracle? Is that a, a, a sign and a wonder that God did? Absolutely. And it testifies to who Jesus was, that he was the son of God. And we see this, this it was so overwhelming, this God's miraculous testimony to Jesus that even a battle-hardened Roman, battle Roman centurion who witnessed it, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is a guy who didn't know the Lord. This is a guy who is uh, pagan, and he's standing there at the foot of the cross. He's witnessing all these things. And the conclusion that he came to, truly, this was the Son of God. The Father testified to the Son through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit was involved at Jesus' conception, his baptism, temptation, and throughout his ministry. And what we see here, what John says, is that the witness of these three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, is in perfect agreement and convincingly demonstrates that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the case that John is making. Is that this testimony is God's testimony that this is my Son, that he truly is God. And so this is the testimony we see, and they convincingly demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
And God's testimony of his son is far greater than any man's testimony could ever be. And so he lays this case out, this testimony. What's the purpose of this testimony? Look at verse 11, 1 John 5, verse 11. It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So the purpose of this testimony, of God's testimony, through the water, the blood, and the spirit, is that sinners may receive eternal life. It's that sinners can be saved. Sinners can be forgiven. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. It's to save sinners, to redeem sinners. And so it's God is pointing to his son as the way, the truth, and the life. And he's saying, this is him. This is my son. And I've testified to him through the water, through the blood, through the spirit. And all three agree that, yes, he is truly the son of God. He is the one who, is, who our faith is to be in. He is the one who loves his people. He is the one who sacrificed and gave his life for people. He is truly the son of God. So the purpose of this testimony through the water and blood and the spirit is that we, that sinners may receive eternal life. And eternal life involves far more than just mere living forever as far as years are concerned. It's more than just endless years. The essence of eternal life is believers' participation in the blessed, everlasting life of Christ through his or her a union with him. It's that we have this union with Christ that we will enjoy for all of eternity. It's more than just endless years. It's this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And so in his presence for all eternity. So it's far more than just living a bunch of many, many endless years, but it's this union with Christ that we will enjoy. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is Jesus' prayer before he's arrested. He's praying to God the Father right before he's arrested and goes to the cross. And he says, this is what eternal life is, that they know you, knowing Christ, that is eternal life. And we will get to experience that for all eternity. And that begins from the moment you come to know Christ. And uh, again, we're, we struggle through life. We, we struggle with sin. We have trials, temptations, things that come our way. But hopefully we're being conformed to the image of his son. And one day when he takes us home, we get to experience it in its fullness. And what a great day that will be. And that is when we experience fully this eternal life eternal life means living forever in god's presence eternal life is not just the length of life but it's the quality of life it's knowing god as our lord as our father as our friend he's our loving father he is our savior and he also says you're my friends this is what we get to experience this is what eternal life is and so then we're move, moving on to the response. So God lays out his testimony. He says, this is why uh, I gave this testimony, is that sinners could be saved and have eternal life. And then we have possible responses to this testimony in John, 1 John 5, go to verse 10. We'll go verse 10 and then to verse 12. Verse 10 says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar 
because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Go to verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So there's two responses to God's testimony. And I'm pretty sure you probably already figured out what those are. First is to believe in God's testimony concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And that's one option. The other option is to reject God's testimony concerning the Son, Jesus Christ. So those are two options. You can't be in the middle. You can't kind of accept it, yet kind of reject it. Either you accept it or you reject it. This testimony that God gave concerning his Son. Verses 12 and 13 again says, Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so John here, he gives, he talks about this testimony of God and he goes through and he delineates what it means. And then these people would understand because we're talking about this Gnosticism, these teachings that they were facing, uh, these false teachers. And John comes to the end of it. And he invites us to believe the testimony of God concerning his son and have assurance that we possess eternal life through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That is the invitation is that we trust, that we, that we accept, uh, that we believe the testimony of God concerning who Jesus Christ is. This is what gives us assurance that we possess eternal life. It's only in faith alone, in Christ alone. And so it's important for us to know that. The next consequence we're going to look at, moving on here, is guidance and prayer. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have uh, the request that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sin that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. So we have guidance and prayers, the next one, guidance and prayer. So just as Christians can know that they have eternal life, and by the way, God wants you to know. He doesn't want you to wonder. He doesn't want you to hope. He wants you to know. He wants you to have assurance that you possess eternal life, that you possess God the Father, that you possess the Son, that he is yours, and that you belong to him. But just as Christians can know that they have eternal life, they can have confidence that God hears and answers their prayers. The Lord promises to grant their petitions, but many believers forget this important condition, is that prayer must be according to God's will. A lot of times we pray, but not according to God's will. He promises to give us the petitions that we ask for if it's in his will. So if I pray for just... Um, a Corvette or something. I don't know. Maybe that's God's will. I don't know. Maybe it's not. But he says, he talks about praying here. He says, you, ha- you will have what you ask if you pray according to God's will. And so it's important that we do that. If God does not seem to be answering, believers should examine their motives rather than questioning God's character. God loves his children and denies them only what will harm them themselves or others and see God is our heavenly father who loves us and as a father or mother 
when you have rules for your kids growing up and things like that, we set boundaries. Why? Just so we can like kill all their fun? They may think that. They do think that. But no, it's for their good. It's for their protection because we know there's dangers out there. And so this is what God, our Heavenly Father, does. He sets boundaries, protection, barriers for us. And that when we live inside of these boundaries, life is good. Life is good. But when we get outside of the boundaries, we can be destroyed. And so this is so God he will not give us something that is not according to his will. And his will is not to let you just go and destroy yourself. Saying there's no boundaries, go live as you please. Now sometimes that is God's judgment on us and we bring the consequences on ourselves because we get outside the boundaries. But when we live inside the boundaries, they're for our good, they're for our protection, they're for our safety. And when we go outside of the boundaries, this is when bad things happen. This is when we can be destroyed. Hold your place there in 1 John and go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. So look back up here in verse 4. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and we need to read this properly. And he will give you the desires of your heart. So if we are delighting in the Lord, guess what? He's going to give us different desires. He's going to give us godly desires when we are delighting in him. So we can't say, oh, I'm just delighting myself in the Lord. He's going to give me whatever I want. Well, that's misreading what God is saying. Saying, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will change your desires. He will give you different desires when we're delighting in him. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. And so we commit ourselves to the Lord. We trust the Lord. We pray. It says he will act. And if we delight ourselves in the Lord, guess what? Our desires will be more in line with his desires. And we'll be able to pray according to God's will. Matthew, uh, Matthew 6, verse 10, you have to turn there. and It's the Lord's Prayer, and it's and, uh, saying that, let's just read it, because I totally left, left my mind here. Went blank. Matthew 6, verse 10. Oh, yeah, this part. <laughs> when in the, the model prayer, when, when he's teaching the disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is praying according to God's will. Is that your kingdom would come that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we need to pray according to God's will. And when we do that, he guides us in prayer, and he will answer those requests that we have when it's according to his will. Oftentimes, we don't know what, what that is. We don't know what's best for us. We think we do, but we don't. God knows what's best for us. The sin that, And then he speak, he's speaking about the sin that leads to death. And the sin that leads to death is a life of continual sin with a refusal to repent. And this is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as one of the things that Jesus talks about. And, he's, and he condemns the Pharisees about this. 
uh, because they refused to repent of their sin. And so it's just this uh, life, lifestyle of sin uh, with refusal to repent. Rejecting God puts people out of prayer's reach. Once they re- when they've rejected God, when they've come to that final state, um, there's a, they're out of prayer's uh, reached. Yet because no one can know whether someone has committed that sin, Christians should pray for their loved ones as well as their brothers and sisters in Christ that they see living in sin, that God would do a work in their life. And so when we see a brother or sister living in sin, we, we pray for them. And that prayer honors God, and God will act. He will act. Uh, when we see people who don't know Christ, we pray for them that God would act that he would reveal himself to them, that they'd be saved. And as long as a person has breath in their lungs, they're not beyond God's reach. And we need to remember that as well. Is that there are certain people who are saying, uh, surely they've gone too far, or those people are too bad, or we have diff- you know, those, those people in that nation, that God, uh, God, does, God can never save them. I mean, I think about our, our missionary that we support, um, in Pakistan, and people would not, when he'd come here, and people would not even allow them in his church, in their church, because of the color of his skin. Because they, say, they see those people as an enemy. You know what he sees them as? Lost people who need the Lord. And so, as long as, they, as long as a person has breath in their lungs, they're not beyond God's reach. He came to seek and to save the lost, and it is unrepentant sin that leads to death. And so, as long as they have breath, and God does a work in their life and they repent, they can be saved. Finally, the fourth consequence, and we'll wrap this up. Freedom from habitual sin, verse 18. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are, we are in him who is true, in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. See this word true, true over and over. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So we are free from habitual sin. Everyone born of God is kept from the evil one. Satan has no power over the believer. He has no power over that. Now, we allow that sometimes. We, we give in to temptation. We battle the flesh. Uh, we, we all do. We're going to until the day that we die or Christ comes again, whichever happens first. But, he, that, but we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed from that. So your salvation is secure. We see that in John 10, 28 and 29. We read that a while ago. But your salvation is secure that you are in the hand of the Father. It says, nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Nobody. Uh, John 8, 38 and 39 says that there's nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate us from the love of God. And so your salvation, if you place your faith in him, your salvation is secure. That can't be changed. You've been freed from the power of sin. Is that, that we are no longer in bondage to sin. We've been freed from the power of sin. We've been freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ took that upon himself. And one day, not now, but one day, we'll be free from the presence of sin. 
So we've been freed. And the moment you came to know Christ, you're free from the power and the penalty of sin in that moment. But one day we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. And when we're in the, whether we die or Christ comes again, whichever, again, whichever happens first, at that time, when we're in his presence, there will, we will no longer battle with the presence of sin. We live in a sin-cursed world. And so bad things happen. People say, well, why do bad things happen? Well, just because we live in a sin-cursed world. That's why. And so that's why bad things happen. It's not because anybody's more or less evil than another. It's just because the whole world, all of creation, is, is cursed under sin. And one day, we'll be free from that. One day, we'll be free from the presence of sin. And we'll be in the, the presence of Jesus Christ. John concludes this epistle on a note of assurance, of hope, affirming that Jesus Christ is true and gracious. He has come so that people might know him and experience eternal life and fellowship with him. This is why he wrote this book. He warns them to stay away from idols. It's funny how it just ends. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That's it. Last, I mean, most of us, you probably wouldn't wrap up a letter that way. Um, but this is how he wraps it up. And it's important. It's important. He's talking about Jesus being the true God. Jesus being the true, true son. And he's given us understanding. And uh, he's talking about fellowship with God throughout this, this whole epistle. Well, one thing that's going to hinder our fellowship with God is we're worshiping something other than God, which is what idolatry is. He says, keep yourself from idols. It hinders your fellowship with God. And so if you want to have fellowship with God, just be a person, going back a few weeks here, be a person who walks in the light, confesses sin, obeys his commands. By the way, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's evidence that you belong to Christ. It says, love one another. Another evidence that you belong to Christ, you love the people of God. Guard against love of the world and the deception of false teachers. Again, there is... Um, there's a lot of false teachers in our world today who are teaching false things, and we have to have discernment. And John warns about this, loving of the world and deception of these false teachers. Live a life of purity, righteousness, and love toward the brothers. This glorifies God and is a pathway to enjoying fellowship with him. And so I, I'd encourage you, it's a short book. Go back and read First John and think through it. Examine your heart. Examine your life. Go back and read it. And um, he gives a lot of tests in there about do you truly know the Lord and things like that. So you can go through, read, read it. And then if there's questions, you can come and, and talk to one of the pastors. You can come talk to me. You can talk to uh, one, a friend or, or whatever. But he wants us to know. He wants to have assurance that we are saved, that we belong to Christ. And we can know that. You can know that tonight. And I hope that you do know that tonight. So, but when you leave here, that you leave with assurance that you belong to him. And that he desires to have fellowship with us. And so that, that's, uh, we end the series with that. Is that we did the series on the fellowship with, with God. And that is how we have fellowship with God. Is that we love God. We serve God. We obey God. And when we do these things. This glorifies him. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for the stage you've given us. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the series that we, uh, Lord, got to enjoy going through. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak to us as we leave. Uh, Lord, that as we 
uh, think through and, and meditate on First John, that you would uh, reveal things in our lives that may be sin that needs to be confessed, uh, or maybe areas that we are not living a righteous life or a pure life. Lord, I pray that you would reveal those things to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would also give us peace and assurance of our salvation as we read through it. Um, Lord, I pray that you help us to love, love you, love each other, and obey your commandments. And uh, Lord, we want to honor you all we do. We want to enjoy fellowship with you and with each other. And so, God, I pray that you would do that in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.